and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Our scripture reading on this second Sunday of Advent comes from the Psalms. It's Psalm number 85. And this morning, I'd like you to read the Psalm with me. I'll read the first verse, and I'd like to ask you to read along with me in the bold print verses, the second and the fourth and the sixth and so on. You have been gracious to your land, O Lord. You have restored the good fortune of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people and blotted out all their sins. You have withdrawn all your fury and turned yourself from your wrathful indignation. Restore us then, O God, our Savior, let your anger depart from us. Will you be displeased with us forever? Will you prolong your anger from age to age? Will you not give us life again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen, O Lord God, to what you are saying, for you are speaking peace to your faithful people and to those who turn their hearts to you. Truly, your salvation is very near to those who fear you, that your glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring up from the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. O Lord, you will indeed grant prosperity and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness shall go before you and peace shall be a pathway for your feet. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. We say together, thanks be to God. So I am guilty, and I don't know if you are guilty, but I am guilty sometimes of listening to the Bible and my ears kind of stop working somewhere halfway in the middle of the scripture passage. You think you're listening, right? You think you're following along, but then you realize your mind is wandering off and you're not actually hearing it. So I want us to go together into the psalm this morning and really try to hear what this psalm might be saying to us today on the second Sunday of Advent in the year 20. 20. Now the psalm begins with this line, you were gracious, O Lord. You were gracious. This is a memory from a time now past. It's a memory about God. You were gracious, God. You blessed us. Once upon a time you forgave us. Uh, You weren't angry with us. These first three verses are like these little morsels, these little memories of God's goodness, like the memory of marshmallows on a cup of hot chocolate from your childhood. God, you were good to us, and we savor that memory. Now, if you read in verse 4, the psalm takes a turn. Somehow, somehow it feels, God, like your goodness, like the warmth of your kindness is gone. We feel unsettled. We feel anxious. We feel afraid. It feels It feels, God, like you are angry with us about something that we have done or something that we have left undone. So I want to ask you uh, to remember a time when someone has been angry 
with you, like legitimately angry over something that you have done. I have this memory seared in my own mind of this time when I was about seven and some of the neighboring kids made this very cool fort and they did not ask my brother or I to play with them. And so we decided to wreck the fort. And and it felt great while we were doing it. But even during the thrill of destroying that fort, I knew that I was doing something wrong. And then I watched someone go to tell my mother. And that feeling, that feeling of knowing that I had done the wrong thing and waiting for the anger that was sure to come, the punishment that was surely coming, that feeling makes you sick. That's the feeling I think that this psalmist is expressing. Will you be angry forever, God? God, take the anger away. This guilt-sick feeling feels like we are dying. So what do you think could be wrong in the life of this community that the psalmist is writing that it feels like God's anger is burning against them? Like something ugly has got to be going on in their common life. It's so bad, this guilt, that even the deep, peace that that sits at the core of their being, even the deep peace that we call salvation, even that deep peace feels like it's been withheld. As I read this psalm today, I wonder whether the lament that the psalmist is expressing isn't something like what it feels to live here now. Because there is a dis-ease in our common life, a sense at some deep level that all is not well with our collective soul. There are inconvenient truths that have long been suppressed or silenced that are now revealed, and if we try to ignore them, they will not go away. The virus that we are all living and dying with has exposed some of these truths. It has kind of pulled back the curtain, right, on some of the inequalities that we have long abided by. Who dies from COVID-19? Well, all of us do, but if you are black or if you are a person of color, you are twice as likely to die from this same disease as a person who is white. If you are black or Latino or Native American, you are four or five times more likely to end up in the hospital from the same disease. If you were already struggling to pay your bills before the virus, you were much more likely to have lost your job and not gotten it back. And you are much less likely, if you have a job, to not be able to work from home and be exposed to the virus. And between March and November of this year, the wealth of those who are billionaires in the United States grew by $1 trillion, 34%. Right? So that's all out in the open right now. At the same time, as all that was going on, another another truth was revealing itself yet again. On May 25th, in broad daylight, a man named George Floyd was murdered. Black man was murdered by a white police officer, and people got angry and righteously angry, and they went out into the streets to protest for weeks and weeks. But there weren't just 
protests. There were more murders, right? Breonna Taylor was murdered. Rayshard Brooks was murdered here in Atlanta. Ahmad Arbery was hunted down by three white men in Brunswick, Georgia in February. And his killing almost went unnoticed entirely, except a few brave people cried out. And the truth that we now understand and we see so clearly is that the color of our skin still matters for health, for wealth, whether we live or whether we die. Each time these murders happen, an argument always ensues over whose fault it was. And whenever we go looking for individual fault, we risk missing entirely the bigger truth, which is the fault line of our racism, the fault line of this historic, generational, bone-deep racism that runs down the middle of every single one of our communities, Decatur, Georgia, DeKalb County, Georgia, name your community. This fault line runs down the middle. There is a fault line within us, too, a fault line, a a, a disdain for human life, a contempt for one another that runs down the middle of all of our hearts. That fault line is a fault line that makes George Taylor's or Breonna Taylor's or Ahmaud Arbery's or Tamir Rice's or Jordan Davis's or Trayvon Martin's or Freddie Gray's or Sandra Bland's death not only possible, but in a way inevitable. Our culture, the one that we have inherited, the one that we continue to abide by every day through our complicity with it, our culture is designed is designed to kill people in just the very ways that we see happening all around us. Our covenant relationships with our kin, the affirmation that we are our brother and sister's keeper, these covenant relationships are broken. And it's hard to say that, right? It's, it's so much more preferable for me and for all of us to live in kind of a dream world, to keep alive some memory of a halcyon time, right? Of, of some imaginary better time. It's so much better, so much more preferable to live in a time of marshmallows and hot chocolate and say, God bless America, this land of opportunity, this land where all men and women are created equal, this land of liberty and justice for all, but, but gauzy memories and false ideals obscure the truth. And the truth is that our neighborhoods and our churches and our hearts are rent by our shared history of enslaving one another. They are rent by our shared history, uh, 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 decades during which our ancestors abided by state-sanctioned terrorism against people of color. Our hearts are rent by laws that enforced a racial caste system that we call Jim Crow. They're rent by our parents' white flight to the suburbs, by our embrace of economic systems that were never designed from the beginning of our country to be fair, let alone equal. But now the truth is out. It's out there, and that truth burns. It feels like God is angry. God is angry that there is a $30,000 average uh, income gap between white and black families. 
God is angry that there is a wealth gap between white and black families that is 10 times. White families have 10 times on average more wealth than black households. God is angry that wealth inequality was created by our own government through racist mortgage and lending policies, policies that that eventually just shifted over into the private sector. I could go on and on with numbers. But how about the number 228, which is the number of years that one economist says it will take the average black family to accumulate the wealth that the average white family has right now? 228 years is almost exactly the length of time that white folks enslaved black folks in America. Right? Our ancestors created this world, and we preserve it. Atlanta is the city with the most Uh, the least economic mobility in the United States of any city in the country. We have abandoned our covenant to one another. So how, how would we ever wonder why the schools don't work as well on that side of town? Why would we wonder whether, uh, why lifespans are shorter and, and, and health uh, is worse on that side of town? And when someone gets shot by police, on a side of town that's other than where we live. Why would we claim it's his fault, right? It's our fault. The fault is ours. You may not have made this world, but you own it. It belongs to you. It belongs to us. And yes, it feels awful to be responsible for this world. It feels, it feels at times like God is angry. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So many of us are waking up, though, right? Many of us are waking up from the dream of the world, of the nation, uh, uh, the community that we thought we lived in. We're waking up to these ugly truths. And when we wake up, we feel bad, right? It feels like divine judgment is upon us, and this is a good thing. It is a good thing to feel bad, to feel like even our salvation might hang in the balance because of the unjust state of the world. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the great freedom fighter from South Africa, reminds us that it can be good to feel bad about the world. Tutu was returning from one of his many trips to uh, enlist support in the fight against the racist policies of the South African government. And he was asked by a reporter uh, if he worried that his passport would be confiscated. And Tutu said, no, I'm not, you can hear his voice, right? I'm not worried about that. He wasn't said, he said he wasn't worried about getting arrested either. He said he wasn't even worried about being killed. That was a very real risk for him. Being killed for a disciple of Jesus, Tutu said, is not the worst thing. So the reporter asked him, well, what could be worse than being killed? And Tutu said, for me, the worst thing would be if I woke up one day and said to my people, I think apartheid is not so bad. He said, for me, that would be worse than death. Yes, it feels bad to live in a profoundly unjust world. What would be worse, though, would be to get up every day and to worship and serve a God who didn't care about such things. A God who remained silent in the face of human cruelty. 
A God who did not resolutely set the divine face toward God's people who are in need. A God who did not move with haste to their aid would not be the God of Moses or the God of Abraham or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So no, things are not well in our common life, but our God is not silent. This feeling of disease that we feel is not a curse. It's our blessing. This feeling is a sign that God's anger has been kindled. God is being God, doing what God has always done, saying what God has always said to those who would hear. I have heard the cries of my people and I have come to deliver them. That's from Exodus, right? Let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a flowing stream, Amos. Is this the fast that I choose to break the chains of wickedness and let the oppressed go free? That's Isaiah. I have come to preach good news to the poor. That is Jesus from Luke's gospel. God speaks. God speaks these words. Who among us is listening? Well, did you notice in the psalm this morning, the psalmist says in verse 8 that there is someone who is listening. A singular voice speaks up in verse 8. I will listen, O Lord God, to what you are saying, for you are speaking peace to your faithful people and to those who will turn their hearts to you. I want to be that person. I want to be the one who is listening. I want us to be the ones who listen and the ones who turn our hearts. May we, may we hear that voice of peace. May we show the way toward justice, toward universal sister and brotherhood in our common life together. May that be us. What does that look like for you and for me? What does it look like to embrace peace by working for justice? A disarmingly simple image circulated on social media some time back, and I think it helps us to see what justice looks like. Here's the image, right? Justice is the boxes. Boxes, right, arranged in such a way that everyone can see so that, that, that what begins as injustice ends up as shalom, the beloved community, the kingdom of God. What What can you and I learn from this image about justice and about peace? Well, first, we should learn that all of us have work to do. Each of us has work to do. We have to do our own work. You've got to look down and see what it is that you might be standing on. This tall dude in the image is standing on a box that he does not need. Now, he may have needed it at one time, but he does not need it anymore. So maybe this Christmas season, you will look down and you will realize that you have enough boxes. You you will see that you are standing on more than you need, right? And I don't literally mean the extra boxes in your attic, the clothes that you have. I'm talking about the line items in your bank statement. I'm talking about your retirement account, your stock portfolio. You will see all of the abundance that you have and you will begin that slow, deliberate, loving process of giving your boxes away to those who cannot yet see over the fence. And perhaps you will see 
eventually, and many of you do already, that boxes are more than our material resources, our private possessions. Boxes are also our access to people in power, access to the levers of power. Boxes are the neighborhoods we live in. Are they safe for our families? Boxes are health insurance. Will someone pay the bills if we get sick? Boxes are our credit ratings. They are the great schools that we have for our kids. How can we share our boxes so that all of us can see over the fence? Our church has its own work to do. In this regard, we have been talking together for years about dismantling systemic racism. We are one of the few churches who has done that. We have worked at this, many of us, for a long time. But we cannot grow weary or frustrated or tired or become self-satisfied. Maybe we ought to put dismantling systemic racism on our church agenda, like literally on the session agenda or uh, on the agenda of every committee. At each meeting, right, we, 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 would, we would say our prayer and we would approve the minutes and then we would say, what did we do in the last month to dismantle systemic racism? What did we do to increase access in our community to affordable housing over the last month? What did we do to make sure every kid in the community has a clean, safe school with great teachers? What did we do to help people who are getting out of prison get settled so that they can contribute again to society? What did we do in the last month to see that no one in our community ever has to choose between buying food or buying medicine? If a month didn't go by at our church, Without us marking our progress on these kinds of goals, do you think it would change the way that our church thinks about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ? Maybe. This image is not just a cartoon. This is a theological image of beloved community. The people in this image treat each other like they are kin to one another, like family, like people who each bear the image of God. The people in this picture have owned up to the fault lines between them, to the fault lines within their own hearts. This image is a biblical image of salvation. It is the salvation of God imagined as collective well-being. This is what we are waiting for in Advent. We don't wait for the birth of a baby. That that happened already. God already sent Jesus to us. Christ was born and lived among us full of grace and full of truth. What we wait for in Advent is God's second coming. The advent of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That is why this is such a powerful reading, Psalm 85, in this season. The psalmist wants us to hear and to see that God is sending out into the world a holy quartet. Call them the four 
horsemen of salvation, if you want. These four emissaries of God are the embodiment of God's character and of God's will. You know their names. They are mercy and truth and justice and peace. God sends these four superpowers to unite with one another, and they will prevail across the whole of creation, and they will bless the land. They will mend our fault lines, and they will nourish every neighborhood and every family. This present moment that we live in may feel like salvation is being withheld. But know that God is among us. And that God's salvation is yet to be fully realized. But that time will come. It is coming. The time when God's people will conform our lives to the character of God and to the character of Jesus in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. There will come a day, the psalm says, when justice and peace will kiss. Sometimes I listen to the Bible and my ears stop working. But sometimes we listen to the Bible and we hear it because it shows us ourselves and it shows us God. And God is lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry with good things. God is doing this now, and God will do this in the days that lie ahead. So today, may we listen and may we hear. Let the people say, Amen.